remind us that both those things are true. That we are loved by you and that um, you are good. And though those things may seem impossible, Jesus, they are so true. And so, God, I pray this morning that you would let those simple truths um, thrive in our life. Lord, I pray that as we look to your word for comfort, for instruction, for solace, for guidance, Jesus, remind us that um, you do speak, you have spoken, that we're not alone. So God, I pray that you help us to listen with open hearts and open minds, myself included, in Jesus' name. Amen. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You are the church. So, for those of you who are uh, maybe new here, that uh, voiceover is actually done by a good friend of mine named Ty Desenfance. And he put this video together uh, for the church, for us to know who we are, that we are not uh, scumbags, that we are not the dregs of the earth, but that, that we are called to be the marvelous light, or not the marvelous light, but to, 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 to represent his light. But he also made it for um, this video contest because he's planning a church. And he won and got five grand for it. And that was part of a huge and momentous story that uh, God did for Prairie Hills up in Lusk. And so if you guys could do me a favor, I want to reiterate what David said earlier. That it, could you please be praying for Ty, his family, and all of them as they're up there uh, starting something new, and it's exciting, and it's fun, um, and I'm sure that it comes with its own difficulties. And so if you could continue to pray with them. The thing about Ty that, that um, is both terrible and also wonderful at the same time, same qualities. Uh, it's terrible because he is such a good man. You know, when I, when I work with good men, like David, and when it was David and Ty, it was just like I felt like this like kid in the room. <laughs> so I was like, I'm definitely male and I'm definitely Christian, but as far as a good Christian man, I don't know if I'm there yet. And so that was like wonderful and also terrible because I always felt like I was just a little bit less than. And so then he makes this video that presents this vision for the church, that the church is called out of darkness. The church is this thing that will be a light to the world. And uh, I hear that, and I'm like, yeah, go church! Hope I don't ruin it for you. And that's my own burden. That's kind of my own journey, and that's kind of always my perspective. And I realize that not everyone's perspective is the same as mine. But there are these two realities going on there. There's what I should be, what the church should be, and then there's what I am. And not like what we were just declaring as like truth, as who I am loved by you, but like the part in the little voice inside of you that tells you who you actually are. Like, you may have been fooling everyone else, but I know who you are. And, and there's this disconnect between those things. And I feel like sometimes when that happens, when there's reality and then there's me, and there's this chasm between it, 
It's like, this is what I should be, and this is what I am. I just feel like, one, I want to fake it. Pretend like I'm already there. Pretend like I'm already the best thing since sliced bread. Or, or maybe I, I want to just hide from it. I want to hide from reality because it's too true. It, it makes me uncomfortable in places that I didn't know existed. Like I've just been, in my essence, I'm uncomfortable with truth and I'm uncomfortable with reality, so I try to hide away from it. I want to tell you a story about, uh, maybe to elucidate this for you. Um, when I was about five years old, we lived in uh, Alma, between Alma and Fort Smith, kind of ish. We were out in the sticks in Arkansas, and my grandparents lived in Topeka. And so we went to visit my grandparents. And we were there for a week. Now, my dad was working at the time, and he was working a lot. And so he would fly out later, like when there was like a day or two left, to just kind of drive us home and everything. So he wasn't there yet. It was just uh, mom and us kids. There were me and my three sisters. The other ones weren't there. And um, so <clears throat> we were there, and we were just kind of like hanging out with Grandpa and Grandma, which was cool. I don't know if you guys remember what five was like. I barely do. But I do remember that from a five-year-old's perspective, my grandparents, who probably weren't even 60 yet, were ancient. You know, to a five-year-old, uh, you might as well have, like, invented writing, you know? <laughs> like, what did you do, Grandpa, before you had paper? You know, that, those are the kinds of things that I would think. And I, I, I certainly don't mean to, to, to poke fun at any of our older members in this congregation, but uh, I've just from a five-year-old's perspective, like, my grandparents were, like, way old. Like, way, way, way old. So then I found out that we were going to visit my grandfather's mother. I didn't even know they had those back then. <laughs> like, I thought that you just, like, came out of a factory back in the day. And, and so, like, if, if he was ancient, then she was beyond ancient. And I visited her uh, once before in my life. And to a five-year-old, we don't understand the familial connection of love. We don't understand the depth of meaning when one generation meets the third generation. We don't understand all the beautiful things that happen in that moment. We just understand that Grandma smells kind of funny, and she doesn't give good candy. At least that's what I was when I was five, because I was maybe a worse than average five-year-old. I don't know. It's a pretty low bar. Um, but... I remember we were going to go visit, and so uh, you parents might relate to this. Anytime that you've ever like gotten your children, your children, children, ready to go see a respected elder in your family, or maybe a respected member of your community that maybe just is a little bit older, you've probably given the speech, which is really, really short, and it involves gestures, and it looks a lot like this: "Don't screw this up," <laughs> like or be good, or I'm not going to say any other things because they might have bad words, but like, you just be good. And I received that speech, and I received it strongly, and I knew that I would be good. And so my mom was like, okay, so she, she knew that I was going to be well-behaved, so she got me this little nice thing to wear. I wore a nice little button-up shirt, and she gave me this clip-on tie, which I remember looking at and thinking, man, I really want to learn how to tie one of these someday. And I put it on, and then I, now I know it's not really not that much fun. Like, if you've ever tied a tie, it's not that great. If you're five, don't worry about it. Just use clip-ons. Um, so I put my little clip-on tie, and it took me about 2.4 minutes to get ready, because I was a little boy. 
And I was ready, ready to go. And I had three sisters, and it takes them about three years to get ready for anything. And so I remember sitting on my grandparents' couch and just being so bored out of my mind. Just thinking, I'm going to go visit this person that I don't want to see, that will probably kiss me and it'll be gross. And there's not going to be any good candy. And there's going to be lots of people like this around, because she was in a nursing home. There's going to be lots of these people, and uh, I don't want to do it. So then I remembered, oh, Grandpa and Grandma have a scooter in the garage. So um, I don't know what you guys, your guys' history or your education is on the evolution of scooters, but um, there is a scooter that uh, goes like this when you ride it. You like put your feet together and you ride it like this. And then for some reason, everyone always bends their knees. Or maybe I just do that because I'm short or I'm tall. And so I'm like, like, you ride like this. And then before that, there was like the stand scooters where you could like coast like this and you like that. Well, I'm going to talk about that scooters like daddy. So back in the day when I was five, we had these little scooters that I'm pretty sure were invented to kill children. And, um, which isn't very, a very worthy goal in my mind for a toy company. And I'm going to demonstrate for you. And it went well during first service, and I'm hoping that it goes well during second service, because sometimes it's hard to get up. Um, so you would sit on it like this. It was just this little like wedge or a saucer. And it, the only component to it on this side was a set of handlebars. And you, you'd grab the handlebars right here, and the way that you would uh, move is you would shake the handlebars. And the way this works is I think it wobbles the wheels and pushes you forward, or it just could be magic. I don't know. I've never investigated. But you, you wobble your arms like this, and if you can't see that, it looks like this. And you propel yourself. Now, I had had a couple days' practice on this bad boy. And uh, <clears throat> has anybody ever ridden one of those? Yeah, that's so weird. Modern children still risking their lives every day. <laughs> Go, America. <laughs> um, so we... Uh, uh, I lost my spot. I just imagine like, all these like, children just riding these scooters. Ah! Um, oh, yeah, I'd had some practice because I was... You know, this is like one of the only things to do at Grandpa and Grandma's house. And so I would get to going pretty fast over the last couple of days, and I thought, I bet I could get faster than fast. So I was a good boy, and I, reminded, I remembered to ask my mom if I could go outside, and she said, yeah, as long as you don't mess up your clothes. Because remember, we're getting ready to go see Grandma Joanne's laughing, because she has children, you know. Um, so I, uh, I go out, I sit on this little scooter, I dig it out of the ground, and I sit on it, and... Uh, I get going. And I do a couple, uh, do you call it drags? It's not a lap. But I'm just going this way, and I turn around, and I go this way, and I turn around, and I go this way, and I, I get going a couple times. And I want to tell you about part of the track, which is the sidewalk, that I was running on. And it, it kind of made it exciting. Now, this sidewalk had existed for a while, and what happened was the ground had heaved and settled. And so the sidewalk at one point didn't meet like this. It met like this. Can everybody see that? Okay, so this is what it looks like when you're coming toward it. 
Okay, this is a little wall of concrete, and this is like a little ledge that you can jump off of. And the idea is that you thread the needle, that you hit right in the middle and it's the most smooth, or at the very worst, you go over the ledge and you do a little, like a little wheelie, which is impossible because you're sitting on the ground. But I tried. So there was, on my last pass, I didn't keep going after this, I, uh, man, some of you guys are good. You, you know where this is going, don't you? I failed to thread the needle. And I failed to even go over the little ledge. Instead, I found this new part over here. And for like a bicycle, that would have been like a bump because the wheels are bigger. But for these little one-inch wheels on this scooter, that there was a stop. Okay? And so um, I'm not going to try to bore you with too much physics or kinematics, but... Uh, a principle in physics is that objects in motion like to stay in motion. That's, it's called inertia. They like it. And so what happened was I was going screaming fast for a five-year-old. <laughs> it felt pretty fast. Probably faster than anybody else could do. <laughs> um, I was going really, really fast, and my scooter stopped. But don't worry. It's Okay. I did go over the handlebars, but I caught myself. I broke my fall on my face. <laughs> and so I used my little five-year-old face as a brake to slow my forward trajectory. And I just remember the feeling of the gravel. And I've now determined that it was this side. And it, I just remember, man, this really hurts. You know, if you could have a thought during that time, it was just like, whoa, this is what pain is. Because if you've ever injured your face, it seems like it's extra nervy. I don't know what that is all about. But it's just really bad. And so I remember, like, coming to a stop. It felt like 30 feet. It was probably more like a foot, maybe. And, you know, picking myself up and thinking, whoa, that just happened. And I'm, like, stunned at this point. It hurts a lot, but I'm not crying. And I think it's because I'm mostly just stunned. And so I get up, shake it off. I leave the scooter behind because that is a death trap, and I'm not touching it again. And I, I go to the house, and my sister comes out, and she looks at me and loses it. Like, loses her mind. She scream cries all at the same time. And I, when I was five, my first response to that was, I'm going to do that too. So she's like, ah! And I'm like, ah! And I haven't seen myself yet, and so I'm pretty sure at this point there are visions of like Quasimodo or the Phantom of the Opera going through my mind thinking, I have scraped my face off at this point. And so I, I'm going inside, and I think in retrospect, this is more scary to me now as an adult because I know better, but at the time it wasn't this scary. My mom's response wasn't, ah! It was, oh. <laughs> like, she looked white as a sheet, and my grandma's like, okay, get in the bathroom. And so I sit down on the toilet, and there's like this little triage center that's happening, and there's gauze, and there's bandages, and there's tape going around, because we're not going to the hospital for this. <laughs> All right? And so what ends up happening is I have this bandage from right around here that goes down here to here, across here, up to here, and there's like a little eye hole. <laughs> I kid you not, I looked like the Phantom of the Opera. 
which is really funny, because the only picture I have of this time, I'm not going to show you, because that's really embarrassing, but I'm riding a horse, and I'm looking at the camera, and I look like the Phantom has stolen a horse, and for some reason he's five. And I just, I looked in the mirror, and I thought, I am going to join the circus now. I, that is my future. I literally look like the Phantom of the Opera. This isn't going to go well for me. And... I was really sad about that for some reason, but I had a couple days to get used to it, and we went to see my grandma, and every, she was, I don't think she could see well enough to see, so it was, it was fine. But what happened was, uh, it, it was kind of early in our trip that that happened, and so there were a couple days, and then my dad was going to show up. My dad flew in. My mom went to pick him up. And it took a couple hours to get to the airport and back. And during those couple hours, I just kept running through the scenarios in my head, and none of them ended well. Because I thought, what if my dad looks at me and thinks I'm a monster? Like, what if my dad looks at me and thinks that I'm not his son anymore? What if my dad looks at me and doesn't want to even be around me anymore? And you know, when you're five, you get neurotic. And so I, I hid I, I ran downstairs, and, you know, Mom and Dad got, home, got to Grandma's house, and they were like, yeah, we and I heard all the commotion and the stomping of the feet, and I just was paralyzed with fear. And so my mom told my dad on the trip, you know, hey, Adam did this thing. He's okay, but it's his face. And uh, so she came to get me to show Dad. And I, I still remember her trying to pry my little five-year-old fingers off of the banister in the stairwell going to the basement because I was so afraid of what my dad would say when he saw me. And he came around the corner and he came down and he says, Whoa, bud. You really caught it, huh? And he hugged me and things were Okay. But I remember that feeling of fear that drove me to hide. I remember that fear that drove me to think, oh, I really just don't want to, I don't want anybody to see me like this. This is ugly, and this is terrible, and there's ooze, and it's bad. And so I hid. And that urge really never left me. You know, as I grew up and grew older, um, the things would become more serious, uh, I would hide for lots of different reasons. There were times I, ha- I hid because of anger. You know, I was so mad about something that I just bottled it up and I wouldn't let it out. There were times I hid because of lust, because I was a teenager and I was a boy. There were times that I hid because I wanted the world to be a certain way, so I lied about it, and then 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 I lied about it, and so finally I was stuck. And I just didn't want anybody to find me. And this is my hope and this is my desire. Not my desire, but at least I hope. um, That some of you are with me on this. You know, I hope against hope that maybe you have avoided this problem, but I doubt you have. Because we are all human here. Perhaps you have had this feeling of hiding. Sometimes we put words to it for the emotions. It's like guilt or shame and sometimes there's behavior behind it so we'll like cover things up we will lie about things we'll misdirect people but I would be willing to bet that since this is a room full of human beings um, 
We're, we've probably all been there. But maybe for you it wasn't like a scraped face, you know, or something stupid. Maybe for you it was something real, something more sincere, more serious. Um, it's, it's hard to talk about because the last couple years I have been in front of this congregation with people and I had no idea the darkness they were hiding. And I had no idea what was going on until sometimes it comes to light and the community knows. Sometimes it comes to light and only the pastors know. Sometimes it just people just confide in me and it's, it's like, whoa, that's going on? That's pretty serious. Some of us, I think, hide anger really well. Or some of us hate it a little less well. But it's like this feeling of anger. But it's just like we have this, this fire inside us that as soon as it gets lit, it gets out of control really fast. And before you know it, we are saying things and we are doing things that in our right mind we would never say, we would never do to the people we love. And, and you know, even if you are able to like control yourself and just like keep it inside your face, you still are feeling murderous thoughts about people that you like, murderous thoughts about people that you love. And it's a really, really hard place to be. Maybe you do let it out, and maybe you do say those things. Maybe you lash out, and you act out, and you're physical about it. And maybe that's become such a thing that it's like a family secret now, where we, we all know it happens, but none of us will ever talk about it. And if it ever happens, we'll all look at each other and then pretend it didn't happen and move on. That happens. That happens a lot, actually. But maybe, maybe that's not it for you. Maybe um, your thing is lust. And that um, I pointed out in first service. That's just that's hard to talk about in church. And maybe the fact that it's hard to talk about in church is a sign of the problem. You know, I, in preparing for this, I wanted to, you know, have a little chart with statistics and numbers on it and. Um, I didn't do that. You won't be able to unthink it once you see it. But suffice it to say that the majority of men in this room struggle with porn or porn addiction, or at least a large bulk of us, um, or temptations toward it. Uh, More than half of the ladies in this room have had that problem too. And it's, it's one of these things that's extra hard. It's extra difficult because it's really, really personal. And it feels extra shameful. You know, maybe, maybe you, you are tempted in a way that, that you know is wrong and you try to hide it. Or, or maybe um, you, your identity, your sexual identity is so out of whack and you know that if you talk about it, then it's, it's really not going to go well for you. So you, you keep that to yourself. And you, what you do is you create this prison of shame that you live in. And, and, you, and you shut the door and you locked it and you said, please never let me out. I don't want anybody to see this. Um, it's hard. And let me tell you, it's not something that you're unique in. It's not something that you're alone in. And there is good news. There can be deliverance. So I, I, I don't want to leave you without any sense of hope here. Um... Maybe neither of those things are for you. Maybe neither of those things are something you struggle with. 
Maybe as I'm talking about this stuff, you're just thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't have those two problems. Clearly, I have none. You know, I want to caution you. There were good guys in the story of the gospel, and the good guys, or the ones that thought they were good guys, were always the Pharisees, and it never went well for them. I want to encourage you that if you today are feeling like, I have nothing wrong in my life, I have no sin that I'm hiding, I have no sin in my life, I'm good. You have pride. And I wish I could say that softer, and probably if I was talking to you one-on-one, maybe I would, but here I am staying in front of everybody. If you think for a second that there is nothing wrong in your life, if you think that there's no sin in your life, you got pride. And you got it so bad that it's blinding you. But I want to tell you that that's just a sin like any other sin. It's a particularly insidious one because it tells you there's no problem. But it's still just sin. And it's still common to all of us. And we all, whatever our thing is, maybe it's not any of those three things. Maybe your thing is unique to you. Maybe you have, have walked a, a path of sin that, that has led you to guilt and shame that is different than something I could think of. But I think that we've all been to the place where we've done something we know we shouldn't have done. And we try to hide it. Because we feel guilt and we feel shame. We feel like we want just darkness to envelop us. Um, in Psalm 139... Uh, David actually read this a couple, a couple weeks ago in the context of comfort because for those that are looking for the presence of God, uh, this is a great comfort. But for those who want to hide, what's the last thing you want to happen when you're hiding? To be found. I'm going to read Psalm 139 for you. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down, and you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hemmed me in, behind and before, and your hand is on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave or hell or death, if I go down to the very depths of the earth, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light around me become as night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. I cannot hide from you, God, is what David's saying. The reason I share that is to say that I am not talking to a group of people that are uniquely sinful. <laughs> we are not. We are not unique in this. It is uh, cross-cultural. I could take anybody from any group in any part of the world, put them all in one room, and we would all stand just as convicted as you and I. And any time. Remember, David wrote this over 2,000 years ago. That was a long, long time. And that was true then. 
And I think it's still true now. We sometimes wish that darkness would just cover us. We wish that we could hide from everything we know is true. We could hide ourselves because we worry maybe what people are going to think of us. We worry maybe God's not going to forgive us. We worry that maybe people aren't going to forgive us. We worry about maybe what God's thinking of us. We worry and we trap ourselves. And I want to tell you that there is good news. And unironically, but still amazing, is the fact that that good news is the gospel. That that good news is the fact that Jesus Christ came and paid it all. All of it. Jesus paid it all. We sing that. And when I said that first service, it just hit me so hard that I was like, okay, maybe we can be done now. (laughs) You know, maybe we can be done. We know that Jesus paid it all, and we should maybe remember that, because that's such an important message. But I think that um, the Word has some specific guidance for us. And so what I'd like is if we could go to uh, 1 John chapter 1. Now, I want to do a little disclaimer here. I am not uh, just checking my text messages or Facebook, or taking a selfie. Um, although we could do that if you want. Um, we don't have to do that. Um, I actually haven't had time to download my Bible app on my iPad, and I really should have thought of that during first service, but I didn't. And so here we are. My Bible's on my phone, is what I'm trying to say. It took a lot of words to say it, but here we go. Um, this is a letter from an old man to his church. Most scholars will point to about 90, 95 AD as the year that this was written. And Jesus ascended into heaven in around 33. And so it's about 60 years that has occurred between when he's writing this letter and when Jesus ascended. So he has worked in the church for a long time. And I would suppose that he's worked with these people for a long time. He's probably watched them grow up and maybe watched their kids grow up. Counseled them, walked with them as a pastor would. Taken in their darkness and recognized who they are. He knows them very, very well. And so he's writing writing them this letter to encourage them. And I think maybe to grow them. Because see, context is really important for me. This same guy named John was also an apostle of Jesus. Walked around with him. Was one of the twelve. Was handed... The church, essentially. And, and Jesus said, you go, make disciples to these people. John's one of them. And he was so moved by that that he wrote a story about his life with Jesus, his time with Jesus. And he says a, a part of that story, which is the Gospel of John, which happens before 1 John, which doesn't make any sense to me, and if I were to write the Bible, I would put 1 John first. Anyway... Yeah, it's whatever. Um, but John is where it is. And at, at one point in John, he says, These things have been written that you may believe and have eternal life. He writes this story to the world to let them know that, a way to have eternal life. He says, You believe in Jesus, you have eternal life, there you go, here's the story. That's the story he's telling with that. And that's at the beginning. He's telling the story of the beginnings of things. And this, I think, is for the a little bit more mature. This is for a little bit more grown-up. This is uh, six years later. He's thought about this a long time, and he's trying to comfort his congregation. And so here's John, the old man, writing a letter to his loved ones. He calls them beloved children. 
Isn't that great? So, let's read. 1 John 1, 1. Now, you'll notice uh, that there's some echoing here. There's some parallels here. Because uh, the same guy that wrote this wrote the Gospel of John. If you remember John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. This says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you eternal life, which was the Father and was made manifest to us. Now before I continue, I want to point out something that is incredibly interesting to me that hopefully you will notice as I read the next couple verses. See, he's using odd language. It, it's almost like he's in the middle of an argument, which kind of maybe he is. He's been talking about Jesus for 60 years now. And maybe he's resuming a conversation that he started way back when. I don't know. But he starts by saying, I have seen it, I have touched it, and I have heard it. He has experienced this thing that he's going to be talking about. Now, spoilers, it's Jesus, but we don't know that yet. We just know that it was in the beginning that he has seen it, that he has touched it, and he has heard it. And then later he says it was made manifest. This is real life, is what he's saying. Because at this point, there was a heresy. It had only been 60 years, but there was already a heresy showing up in the early church. It was called docetism. And the really um, short, probably insufficient explanation for it is that docetism was the idea that God, yes, Jesus was God, but God is such a big concept that there's no way that such a big concept could fit into such a small case, could fit into such a small man. And so they said that, well, um, we really don't want, we don't believe that Jesus actually walked around, but he's a great idea. Like, he's a great concept to follow. God loves us so much that he would show up. Like, that's great. We love that idea. But we don't really think he was a person. They think that maybe he might have been a collection of people. I don't know. But this is already happening in the early church. And John, he's worried about his kids. He's worried about his family. So he writes them. He says, I have seen it with my own eyes. I've heard it with my own ears. And I've touched him. I have experienced Jesus. I'm not talking about a concept. I'm talking about a person. And I want to remind the church today, it's been 2,000 years. Sometimes we reduce Jesus to an idea. He was a person that spoke, that, 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 that walked around, probably had calluses on his hands from the line of work that he was in, probably slapped you on the back when they were laughing. He was a person and what a person to be around. And John says, you might not have met him, but I met him. He's real. This is reality. I think that's such a profound place to start. You know, and I could go into, there's, there's some language here that points to, you know, he, he's talking about light and the word, which are two big concepts in Greek culture. Like the word logos is the idea of truth itself. First-hand reality. Jesus is real. And he's a person. And that's where he starts. He says, 
that he was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In verse 3, notice he says, That which we have seen and heard, we now proclaim. We proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. You can share in the thing that I have. I met him, I know him, you can know him too. You can have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There are some manuscripts that say so that your joy may be complete, but I don't think there's a lot of meaning lost in between either of them because he's talking about the community anyway. You and me, fellowship, those are the stakes right now. Whatever it is he's talking about, he's talking about fellowship. He's saying that that I am telling you this so that we can have fellowship together and so that we can have joy together. We can share in this tremendous joy together. Together being the operative word here. And he goes on. He says, This is the message that we have heard from him and now we proclaim to you that God himself is light and in him is no darkness at all. Which is basically the equivalent of starting off with a, a song. You know, starting off with a song, it says true things, everybody's like, yeah, okay, I agree to that. That's fine, I'll even sing it. He says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, sure. And very, very quickly, he goes into this, this, this section of scripture that, I, to be honest, I wish didn't exist sometimes. There are components of this, this next passage that when I'm at my worst, I wish wasn't true. Because it's so clear. And it's so straightforward. But it is scripture. It is true. It is inspired. These are God's words. And so I want you to bear with me. I, I, I feel the tension with you in some of these difficult things that he says. He says, God is light. There's no darkness in him at all. And if we, uh-oh, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He says that, that, that fellowship and walking in darkness are mutually exclusive. We cannot be friends with God. We cannot be in community with God. We cannot be connected to God while we walk in darkness. He says this in, in a way that um, a lot of scholars have, have pondered over and tried to wriggle out of and come up with some goofy theologies. And I, I really think that let's just take it word by word and take it at its word. That he says, you cannot walk in darkness and say that you have fellowship with God. Those two things don't coexist. Ugh. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And so he, he introduces this idea, that, or reiterates, I guess, this idea that, that we, fellowship with each other isn't at stake and fellowship with God isn't at stake. It's kind of all together. And, he, and, and David's probably going to illuminate this later on. He, he makes those ties even stronger later in the letter. But he says that your connection with God, your fellowship with God, is also somehow linked with your fellowship with each other. And he says, but if we walk in the light, as, in, as he is in the light, we do have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
Now, the, the, the concept here, the cleanses, isn't like a literal physical cleansing, like it's like a, a bucket of mystical water gets poured over our head uh, when we're walking in the light. That would be weird. I'm not sure I'd like that. What he's talking about is he's saying that, that when we walk in the light, that Jesus declares us clean. Like in the Old Testament. Where in the temple system, people would go to the animals, they'd lay their hand on an animal, and then that animal would take on their sin, and they would be clean for a while. That's the same idea. And if we say we have no sin, this is a hard one, if we say we have no sin, we lie to ourselves, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And he says it again in verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So when we, when we say that we are sinless, when we say, well, I don't have anything going on, I'm good, then not only are we deceiving ourselves, but we're also, in a way, making God a liar, or trying to make him a liar. It's not going to work. Um, and we're also, there's, his word is not in us. We're not, we're not sitting at his word. We're not understanding. It's a really, really hard truth. There's a phrase in English that we use. Um, you say that when someone's in this position, they're stuck. Maybe sometimes you just stop there. You're stuck. But you say you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the idea is that it is inescapable. Because on one hand, there is this idea that we, are, we want to walk with God. We want to, to have fellowship with Him. But if we walk in darkness, we don't have that. And if we claim that we don't walk in darkness, then we're lying. So there's these two truths that we're stuck between. That we can't have fellowship with God while we're walking in darkness. And that if we say we do not have sin, that we are liars. What do you do with that? Like, what, what happens then? There was a time, and I'll, I'll be short, there was a time when I got majorly stuck down in Colorado. It was last winter. There was like two feet of snow on the ground. Probably will be four or five by the next time I tell the story. And... Uh, there was a lot of snow, and I was driving a shuttle van, and we just got back from taking kids to go skiing. I parked, and I parked in this precarious place, and it was like, um, I don't know, it was probably hubris, pride that got me there, because I'm, you know, I'm a resident of Wyoming, and so I basically feel like, well, since I have a driver's license from Wyoming, that means that I can get unstuck from anything now because I have those skills. Mm, yes, it didn't work that way. So we got how we looked around, and it was like, ugh. And so what did my pride say? Adam, maybe you should call for help. No. My pride said, fix this. And so I got my Wyoming self transplanted, but still Wyoming, and I got in the van, and I started it, and I put it in drive, and I went forward, and I went in reverse. I went forward, and I went in reverse, and every time I went forward in reverse, I went down and down and down. So I was trying to rock it, you know, and I tried all the tricks. And so it got to this point where it got really scary really fast. You could say stuff got real. And uh, I, I buried this van at the top of a hill. Okay, and the hill is like at a pitch like this. It's not much less than that. And so I'm at the top of this hill and I feel the van going like this. Until finally I'm at this point where I don't want to move. Because I'm sure that if I go forward, I'm going to flip the van over. And if I go backward, I'm going to flip the van over. And if I breathe wrong, I'm going to flip the van over. And it's just all going to go bad really fast. 
And so very, very carefully, I reach over to the electric window, get it down far enough so the guy outside can hear me. And I say, hey, Reuben, call the, call the wrecker at the lodge and get him here. And I white-knuckled it for about 15 minutes, just sitting there until this tow truck showed up. And I didn't say this first. He showed up, and he goes, wow, you're stuck. I'm like, thanks. Get me out. See, I had to reach outside of myself. And I tell you what, guys, we can sometimes feel stuck between this truth that, that all of sin and all fall short of God's glorious standards and that, that in order to have fellowship with God, we have to walk in the light. There is this way out. There is this way to get unstuck. If we want to walk with God, um, John suggests something for us. It says in 1 John 1.9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have to reach outside of yourself. Let me tell you today that if you are stuck in a prison of guilt and shame, if you are stuck in a place where you feel like there is no way out and you're going to just die in this thing, you're right if you don't reach out. Sometimes reaching out happens to you. Sometimes you can do it. And I want to encourage you this morning to practice this old, simple, incredibly difficult discipline of confession. Now, there's a couple people that we can confess to. And what I would say is that since it's Jesus that forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, I'd say let's confess to him first. Let's talk to Jesus and deal with stuff. Because we are not going to be any good to anybody if we're walking around unforgiven. If we're walking around uncleansed. If we have not admitted before God himself what's going on in our lives, in our secret place, then we're not going to be able to help anybody. Second, I want to encourage you that confession happens mutually. Um, in James, the half-brother of Jesus encourages us to go, to go to each other and confess things where there's sin. Paul reiterates that in Galatians. Where there's sin, talk to each other. Open up. And Jenny pointed out that I didn't really harp on this too much on the, during the first service. I feel like it's easy to confess to God sometimes because he's going to keep your secret, right? That's between me and God. And sometimes, like, that's where we stop. And I want to tell you that, that he's given us the opportunity to have fellowship with each other. That that sin that cuts us off from him might also cut us off from each other. And when we confess these things to each other, maybe it gives each other permission to, to share your own thing. Um, let's say, for instance, this is a stupid example, but I'm going to use it again. Um, let's say, for instance, that Anya is an incredibly huge Justin Bieber fan. She loves him. Like, she's got t-shirts, all his CDs, goes to his concert. It's great. But she knows that that is very not acceptable <laughs> in a sane society. So she keeps that to herself. 
Sorry, if you're a Justin Bieber fan, I'm just, it's tongue-in-cheek. I'm just kidding. Mostly. Maybe not. Um, but she keeps that to herself because she's afraid, right? So what happens if her dad, Rob Randolph, walks into the room and is like, man, I just listened to this Justin Bieber song and I loved it. It was the best ever. Anya's going to be like, I like it too. Because him admitting something leads to maybe her feeling more comfortable to admit something. Now, in this case, honestly, liking Justin Bieber is not a sin, I promise. Um, At least I don't think it is. Um, But that kind of same thing happens in relationships, doesn't it? And, And we walk this scale of like acquaintances to friends to good friends to real good friends to best friends. You know, some of us married ours. Someone that you just share your garbage with. And you say, this is, this is where I'm at. And I, th- just, there's this em- empathy inside of us that when we hear someone say that, we feel better about saying, me too. Maybe it's not specifically you too, but you say, yeah, I've got my own things. Yeah, me too. And the reason I bring this up is because it's still early in the year. And because I'm not going to finish the year with you. And so uh, some of these words are like last words. And one of the last words I want to have with North Hills is that I hope that this could be one of the first communities where we are open and honest with our sin. Not just with God, but definitely with God. That we are honest before God. That we don't wink at it. That we don't say, ah, it's fine, whatever. That we go before God and we say, this is wrong and I did it and I'm sorry but that we wouldn't stop there and that we would talk to each other and we would say, I did this thing and it was wrong. I haven't even apologized for it. I haven't even prayed about it yet. The the, the other person would say, yeah, let's pray about this. I've got my own stuff. Let's bring this before God. Because in that moment, there's this beautiful thing called fellowship. And it's beyond common interest and it's beyond... Uh, similar walks of life. You know, if you've got kids or you don't got kids, it's beyond all that because it's it's our humanity. And it's our humanity calling out to each other and aiming us toward God. And my hope for us this year is that we would go forward as an authentic community. That we would get real with each other. That we would be a place that that would be known, maybe in Goshen County, as being the one safe place you can go to. You know, there's a story I want to tell. Uh, It's from uh, a show called The West Wing. Some of you might like it. Some of you may have never heard of it. Some of you might not like it. I don't know. I really liked it. And there's this part that I remembered when I was preparing this. And it was a conversation between uh, Leo McGarity, which is the chief of staff for the President of the United States, and his deputy chief of staff, uh, Josh Lyman. Now, Josh just found out that he has PTSD. He got shot. That'll do it. Um, And he's just now realizing it, and he's kind of losing his mind at work. And he's worried that his boss is going to fire him. And so he goes and he tells his boss, he just found out he's got this thing. And his boss, Leo, who, uh, for those of you who haven't seen the show, is a recovering alcoholic. Completely different thing than PTSD. But it's its own thing. He says, this is Leo's response to Josh when he's got his worries. 
Leo tells him this story. He says, this guy's walking down the street when he falls in a hole. Now the walls are so steep, he can't get out. And a doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? And the doctor writes a prescription, throws it down in the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shows up. Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. And our guy, he says, Are you stupid? (laughs) Now we're both down here. And the friend says, Yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Sometimes God's greatest gift to us is ourselves, to each other, is each other. He put us in a community on purpose. That we would not deal with just an abstract concept. Prayer is so difficult because we can't touch and we can't see and we can't hear like John did. But we can see each other. And we can hear each other. And in sharing our difficulty, I think that we can grow together. We can be that place. Now, I want to encourage you that if you find yourself in any of those places I talked about earlier, you know, specifically if you find yourself in some sort of like sex addiction or porn addiction or uh, alcoholism or, or maybe it's prescription drugs, whatever it is, I want to encourage you to, to get help like right now, like look up a rehab program, but also tell someone here. Tell someone you're close to. Tell a friend, hey, I've got this thing going on in my life and I've been struggling with it for years. And I've been the only one in on it. And can you get in on this? Share with each other. And maybe you can walk into the light a little bit more. Um, As the worship team comes up and starts, um, I'm going to pray. God, thanks for your love. And thank you that you do provide us a way out of our own sin. Jesus, you freed us from the judicial concept of sin, the the legal sense that we are no longer guilty. But Jesus, we still commit sin. From time to time we walk in darkness and it scares us. And we want to hide. But Jesus, I pray that you would help us to step into the light. Jesus, that we would uh, not do it under our own power, that we would not think that somehow we're special that we're stronger than everyone else, that we can just bootstrap our way out of this. But Jesus, that we would understand that it's only by your power and only by confessing to you that we are cleansed from unrighteousness. So Jesus, I pray that you would be with us now. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to, to be honest with each other and with you. And I pray that you'd help us to take this time Maybe confess some things for the first time. So as our ushers are going to come forward, I want to give you a little bit of advice. If you feel like the thing that you've got is just too big, you know, you've got the thing that you're struggling with is too big to talk about soon, but you want to make a decision about it, I want to encourage you to get out your phone write yourself a text message say do this thing find someone you can talk to and do this thing or maybe uh, tear one of the connect cards in half and keep it part for yourself um, whatever it takes I want to 
want to encourage you to go before the Lord and go before each other regularly. Because you'll, it's so much better to walk in the light than to walk in darkness. So will you please stand and sing with us? Ushers, would you mind taking the offering this morning?